For every boss of every organization, the ultimate goal is productivity. So what's the best way to motivate workers? Making them listen or letting them talk? Hello again, I'm Armin Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from the UCLA Anderson School of Management. The answer to that question is oddly the same at organizations that could hardly be more different. For factory workers in China and administrators at Princeton University. Professor Sherry Wu has discovered astonishing similarities in relations between labor and management in both those places. She specializes in social psychology and behavioral science. Professor Wu, welcome. Hey, Warren. Thanks for having me. How did you get people in such very different places to be the subjects of your extensive experiments? Well, it's not an easy job to get them all on board in the first place. Uh, but I really started out with the Chinese factory workers uh, with the questions in mind. So what is the effect of voice and participation uh, on behavior change? And also, does voice change how you see those around you in the workplace and also in the society? So I'm really interested in the Chinese factory contest. So on one hand, Chinese factory workers might not work well in this contest because factory management do not like uh, the idea of participation of voice from the workers, and the workers are not used to it. But on the other hand, this contest, voice might work particularly well in this context, because these workers will never have the formal experience of having voice in their workplace. So this treatment might have a larger effect than in other contexts where voice and participation is more common. So this is why we picked this contest to experiment in the first place. Actually, quite counterintuitively, the factory management uh, really do not like this idea. And they are worried that this voice intervention might interfere with workers' productivity because we came with the intention that the voice treatment will increase workers' productivity because that will make them feel more empowered and more motivated. The factory management say, we do not want to try this because these workers, they are paid on their piece rate. So the more they produce, the more they earn. So they really do not want to take the time away from their work to talking about their random stuff. So we spend a lot of time persuading them and doing pilot work to show there's no backlash from this voice intervention. So that's how we get them on board. Okay, voice intervention is what you're talking about. Let's hear how that experiment worked. Starting in China, you had 1,752 factory workers participating in 20-minute weekly meetings for six weeks. In half of those meetings, the supervisor talked and the workers listened. In the other half, the supervisors stepped aside and the workers did the talking. Once again, their voices were heard. So what did you find out that might have been different from what you expected? Yes, yeah, so I think uh, mostly uh, it's consistent with uh, my prior hypothesis. I started out with the idea that voice will be a motivating force because we inherently love the idea that you have our voice heard. So the experience of having your voices heard is motivating yourself, which may lead to further behavioral change in this contest, increasing behavioral productivity. And that is indeed what we found in this specific contest, even though those around us, the factory management in particular, do not think it will really drastically change worker productivity. We did observe that among workers encouraged to speak up in their daily uh, regular morning meetings, productivity actually uh, increased more than 10% during the six-week period when we are doing this intervention. So this is a randomized control trial. Half the work groups are assigned to this voice intervention. 
the other half of the workers still continue with their status quo meetings. Basically, uh, the, the supervisor of this group lecture them on what is good, what strategy works the best, what's their daily production goals. But in the treatment, we basically moving these meetings from a top-down dynamic to a complete bottom-up dynamic. So now the same information of what are the good strategies and what are the personal goals no longer coming from the supervisors. They are coming from the workers organically. They expected, I take it, that it would be a better motivator and they'd get more productivity out of the workers if the managers were, in fact, the ones in charge of the meetings. But what it turned out, contrary to their belief and supporting your thesis, was that when the workers had a voice, they actually were more productive. Was there anything beyond that? Did the workers get out of control in any way? <laughs> yeah, so uh, we have research assistant carefully noted down what they talk, and uh, we have follow-on surveys on how people felt about their local management and their job satisfaction, and we continued recording their behavioral productivity every day. So these are really perfect quantifiable data for behavioral scientists. So we found that young workers productively basically measure how many widgets they produce every single day, which translate into how much money they get into their pocket by the end of the day, because these are peace rate workers. Uh, we find uh, these workers who participated in the voice treatment actually are reporting higher job satisfaction. And interestingly, they are not resenting their factory management just by sharing their experience at work and sometimes even dissatisfaction on, on some of the work environment, like a decent cafeteria meal. So even these complaints did not lead to a dissatisfaction about the management. So what we observe is that people are inferring from this treatment that their higher up factory management care about them more and respect them more. So even though these frontline workers do not have interaction with the CEOs, the HR folks, the decision makers in the factory, but they make an inference that now they have a chance of having their voice heard in their daily meetings. So they infer that the factory management actually cared more about them and respect them more. It seems like the intervention not only changed the way people work, but also changed the way how they think about their work. Okay. So now you go to administrators at Princeton University in uh, New Jersey, about as different a place from a Chinese factory as you could possibly imagine. What happened there? What did you do there? Was it the same kind of experiment? So the intention was when we find this uh, substantive change in behavior and also in workers' attitudes, uh, we got a bunch of viewers telling me, look, these are the factory workers in China, authoritarian regime in a super hierarchical context. So this perhaps is a China-specific effect or a factory-specific effect. So that is why it really motivates me to say, hey, I think voice is pretty universal and then the motivation power of voice and participation is pretty universal. So why not do it in a context where people are more educated, more empowered, have day-to-day -day experience in voice and participation in their education system, in political system, in this everyday life. That is why we did a replication in Princeton University with this very highly empowered administrative staff. A lot of them have their PhD degrees, actually, with exactly the same treatment. So changing the group dynamics from whatever it used to be in their departments to a worker-initiated or employee-initiated dynamics where in the meeting, it's really the employee who are sharing their work strategy than their personal goals. So again, change the meeting dynamics from more of top-down manner to a bottom-up manner where employees are speaking. Is Princeton's administrative staff as hierarchically organized as the Chinese factory? 
I say definitely not. So these were the staff members in different academic departments. So we recruited、uh, 34 academic departments. So these were physics department, psychology department, chemistry department, like school of public policy. So these、uh, employees are really working pretty much non-hierarchical manner. So they have a academic manager who oversees all the other administrators, and we have people working in charge of departmental finance, people in charge of departmental budgeting and lab equipment. Everything from event planning to the implementation. So these workers already have a pretty、uh, non-hierarchical interaction manner. In this way,、uh, these knowledge employees are worlds apart from the factory workers. The context different. The study population is different. That is why we think to see whether this insane intervention can have similar effects on. In such a context where basically everything is different, except that in treatment the same. Everything is different except that in each case you had that experiment where the voice of the workers is heard in one case among one group, I should say, and then there's a sort of placebo group, I guess, where the administrator does all the talking. Yeah, and in this Princeton contest, it's not even necessarily the head of the academic staff group doing all the talking. So we did not change any of the existing dynamics. So it is possible in some academic groups. Already, workers are spending a bunch of time talking among themselves, but in other groups, it could be more hierarchical. In that, these groups starting in a pretty different place. And the interesting thing is, we find pretty similar parallel effects across all those departments who had intervention compared with those departments who did not have intervention, as you said, in placebo group. Just to summarize, then, different as these groups are, and different as the experiments necessarily were because of that. What can you say that's the same about each of these two groups? Yeah. So one obvious commonality is basically the intervention itself. So that is why we really wanted to do a randomized control trial because it is the only way we can get causal inference to really quantify the effect of the voice on workers' behavior and their attitudes. So we are saying that is why we really try to replicate this intervention in these two different contexts using very similar protocol, using very similar measurement. So this is the commonality, not so much between two different samples and contexts, the same treatment. The other similarity that I can think of is they both have a very strong group structure. So these workers know each other, so they really identify with their groupmates. So I can say that these were work groups. Which have a long history, long present, and long future. They already have existing interaction patterns, and this is the group that the employees really strongly identify with. These workers identify with which group they are in, like group one, group two, and in the Princeton contest, these administrators also strongly identify with which academic departments they are in, like I'm a physics staff, I'm a chemistry staff. So you said earlier that the Chinese factory workers are making widgets every day,、uh, and their productivity is measured by how many widgets they can turn out in a given day. What's the comparable product that is being delivered by the administrators at Princeton? Yeah, so this is a tricky question、uh, when we were designing the experiment because these were knowledge-based、uh, employees who are not producing tangible. Products, right? So in the Chinese factory contest, we can count exact number of pieces where they have advanced、uh, counting machines. But in the Princeton contest, it's really about efficiency of their work. 
So on one hand, we have these employees self-reported performance, basically how well they were able to communicate different messages across different divisions of the group and how efficient they are to implement the projects. So this is one measure, but obviously it could be biased because I always think I'm very productive. So we all have this egocentric tendency. So that's why we actually asked the Princeton central administrators to blindly rate these different academic departments on their performance. So these raters do not know which academic departments is randomly assigned to treatment and which department is in control. They basically rated every single academic department in Princeton, right? Based on how well do you think this department perform in general and how efficient their communication pattern is, how well is your overall interaction with this department. And the really interesting thing is Basically, these seven top raters who have regular contact with all the departments did not know which department is in treatment and which department is in control. Nonetheless, we observed very significant difference on these third-party ratings. So we still observe that groups who participated in the voice treatment are actually being rated as more efficient uh, in their work during a six-week period and even after the six-week period by a third party. I understand that uh, one of the things you found was that having gone through these experiments, those workers who were allowed a voice tended to be less authoritarian and more critical about societal authority and justice. That would have different repercussions, I would think, in China than it does in the United States. Yeah, so I say that's a pretty bold prediction we wanted to test out. Initially, we were not confident that it will change people's downstream attitudes on societal authority and justice, because to our knowledge, no experimental science has ever tested that using randomized controlled trials. My idea to start with is really the intuition that workplace inviting more worker participation, more worker voice can empower the workers and decreasing blind trust in authority and justice, and maybe motivating civic and political participation. So we, we did test out those ideas among the Chinese factory workers. Obviously, we have to frame the question in a very neutral way. We cannot directly ask about like how you think about democracy, things like that. But we basically asked them how much they're interested in the civic construction the local city is doing, and how often they follow newspapers and also on TV, and also their day-to-day decision-making, their family, outside the workplace, and in politics. We literally see that four weeks after the end intervention, these workers were encouraged to speak up more in the local workplace. They are also reporting stronger interest in participating outside the workplace. In this sense, we are observing that they are reporting significantly lower authoritarian attitudes, lower belief in the justice nature of the world. In this way, this consistent with the earlier I mean, our hypothesis that it is true that the local workplace, how it is structured, can impact how people think about those around them, even outside of the workplace, even though they are not talking about the society. But we found that by talking about their work, by talking about their work regularly, can have a spillover effect on how you think about the society around you. So we're led to believe that China is a fairly authoritarian society. So you had to sort of go at this indirectly, it sounds like to me. You didn't want to create a bunch of dissenters. I mean, I also don't think this intervention is going to revolutionize it. And it's obviously not the factory's vision that they want us to create a bunch of dissenters. But the good news is they actually reported higher satisfaction on the factory management, uh, even though at the same time, uh, the treatment worker did report decreasing blind trust in the societal authorities. 
which is a really interesting finding and I think a very promising finding on thinking about how the construction of the local workplace can affect how people behave outside of the workplace. What about the Princeton administrators? Did they appear more likely to participate in politics in the United States? Yeah, so we did not actually specifically measure their participation behavior in voting or things like that, because we already hypothesized that these knowledge employees, they already are super involved in politics and civic engagement. Uh, that is one reason we did not particularly measure it. And also we have a sense constraint on how many questions we can include in the survey measurement. So that's why we didn't measure. But we measured the exact same thing on authoritarian attitudes. So items like what extent you agree that obedience and respect for authority are the most important virtues children should learn. So these basically fundamental attitudes that in people's mind, we found that actually the short-term intervention, 20 minutes once per week for six weeks, are actually able to change these attitudes. That seems to be very profound as a part of their ideology. It's just so interesting that the same things seem to be true in such different places. The idea of participatory work structure, you've said, is sort of a Western-centric idea. It's popular here, but not necessarily in China. Did you find out something about China that you didn't know before? You're Chinese. I think that is counter to my expectation and also counter to, I didn't expect that the factory management would be uh, so, I mean, against this idea of workers speaking more in local workplace. At first, I thought it would be an easy sell because we have pretty strong theoretical I mean, thesis um, on why this intervention could have a big potential on increasing worker productivity. And by the end of the day, uh, worker productivity and the role market value is what the stakeholders care about, right? So I was thinking this intervention will be easy to sell because it is a win-win situation. We are not adding on extra cost. We are utilizing a formal structure they already have, trying to change the structure of these 20-minute meeting a little bit and only once a week. So I think this is a really small ask, but uh, it was not easy to sell this intervention. It's also very encouraging because even though it is counterintuitive to many of the factory management, but it actually had an effect, very sizable, I mean, say 10%, where people are making these different pieces every day. So that is expected, but also pretty surprising. Yeah, well, a 10% increase in productivity or efficiency, as you say, that's a big number. Do you think as a result of your work, there will be more participatory activity in work and, and in meetings of this kind in either China or in Princeton? Yeah, I think in China, definitely, I speculate they did do a more of this same dynamics after we left the experimental site. The reason I said that is the experimental period was only six weeks long. So we did intervention once per week for six weeks. And then we did a bunch of measurement and we left the site. But what we observed is we observed that worker productivity from the treatment group were sustained for nine weeks even after we left the site, which is really striking in some ways. So the meetings were no longer taking place, were no longer monitored by us, but these workers are still being more productive than their counterpart in the placebo condition. So what I speculate is these workers who actually observed how these meetings took place have adopted some of the strategies and used them by themselves that is contributing to the sustained behavioral productivity increase. So I think by basically using a sustained voice channel, it is basically sustaining the productivity edge to these treatment workers. 
in Princeton, I think we have interviews with these departmental administrators afterwards. And basically, people really loved it. It's interesting because a lot of the participants say they actually have a lot of fight and conflict in these meetings. But in the end, they really like it. So I think they say something about the motivating factor and the universal power of voice among employees, even though there's sometimes there's conflict. But by the end of the day, it is really the vision that we are the whole group and uh, the experience of having a voice heard within a group that you identify with. Um, I mean, have a strong power. So, Ashari, it appears to me that you have a very powerful instrument here that could, in fact, sway people, despite whatever ideology it is that they are living under. Can you address that? This is really, I mean, it demonstrate uh, the power of voice. And I think more importantly, it is demonstrating that we do not need necessarily big workplace overhaul to achieve the effect, that we can really start local, start small to reap the benefits of voice. It's really a manipulation, uh, utilizing or taking advantage of the voice in your local group. By extending uh, the intervention more, maybe extending it to the whole factory, it could have different consequences. And the true answer is, I don't know. And I speculate the channel uh, of voice, the power of a voice is pretty prevalent. I would love to see this natural experiment rolling out. But in a short sense, I think uh, the implication is of this experiment is more in a business setting where I cannot make a strong speculation on what it will look like if we do it in a large society. But I can definitely say that uh, a big implication from this work is sometimes when we want to make changes, uh, whether behavioral change or attitudinal changes, we do not need a big structural overhaul. We can really start local, start small. Is it something that would be appropriate to suggest for a labor union contract? I think, again, this really depends in the context, because we know uh, from research uh, in psychology, a lot of times good intentions can backfire. But there's a research actually on diversity programs. So we really wanted to promote this idea of inclusivity and diversity. So sometimes we force people to uh, sign up for some programs. But it could backfire. Because if people's motivation is not aligned, they are strongly against it. The participants who are in this program do not like this idea that's mandatory and that could backfire. Because, you know, as human beings, we, we, we sometimes want to do what we are told not to do. That could be the danger. So I, again, I think any intervention must be particular to the workplace environment and culture. And we need to do some research, some piloting, or some of the, the policy evaluation before we roll it out to the worker unions or making as the mandatory policy. When they're having these meetings and the workers are the ones that are speaking and not the supervisors, you say, is that when they tend to get into fights or is it when the supervisor is there that they get into fights? So in, in either way, so the supervisor is always there. I think the conflict is mostly from the workers' disagreement. So sometimes one worker says something and the other employee might not necessarily agree that is the best strategy to go. In this sense, it's really a cultivating a sense of collective decision making to some extent, which can make us to a stronger and more cohesive team. Do you think that whatever worked with a garment factory in China would work with the garment workers in downtown Los Angeles? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think so. We have already observed two very, very different contexts. I don't have any reason to doubt it will work differently in a LA government factory. <laughs> okay. 
in either case, uh, it's just fascinating how these very different places can be as similar as you have found them to be uh, in the very basic workings of such different enterprises, the clothing factory in China and the uh, University of Princeton. Uh, Professor Sherry Wu, it's been great to talk with you, and thank you so much for being with us on How the World Works. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. I'm Warren Olney. This has been How the World Works from the UCLA Anderson School. Thanks very much for listening. Join us again. Thank you.